0: Father in heaven, thank you for this place where we live, uh, for the blessings you've brought to this community, for, for the church in this place. Lord, I pray you'll be with us now as we reflect on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1 today. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So this is how Paul opens his letter to the Romans there's some pretty impressive words he puts in his introduction to letters. We don't really write letters this good anymore, but this is just the introduction. He's just just starting it out, but he manages to work all of this really good theology into it. And if, if you come to this in the context of Christmas, which I did this week when I was reading this in my Bible reading, it suddenly occurred to me that it's not exactly a birth narrative, but, but in a sense, it is a birth declaration that Paul is giving here where he talks about Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And if you want, this is kind of a Christmas connection for us today, this idea, because you remember that Jesus... Before he was born, he was transported in his mother's womb with Joseph and Mary to the city of who? The city of David, right? Bethlehem, where he was to be born because his father was of the line of David. So here we see this, and and in this letter, he's saying he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, which means he was in the line of David David, of course, was the king, so that made him the fulfillment of the prophecy of the coming king. This is Paul's way of saying he came as the Messiah. Now, if you're paying attention to what I read you, you would have noticed in there that we have both pieces of the core confession we've been talking about from our series this fall. Remember, faith, hope, and love, and in the first one we talked about faith and how the Christian faith begins with the confession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We see this in what Paul has written. In verse 3, he says, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, meaning who was the Messiah, and then verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So in this salutation, Paul is making the confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was born, and he was born for a purpose. But what all was included in that purpose? There's there's one point in particular I want us to focus on today. And in order to really get the shape of this, I want to go back to Matthew chapter 16, where really we get a very succinct telling of this statement of faith. Matthew 16, verse 13, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, "'Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?' So they said, "'Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets.' He said to them, "'But who do you say that I am?' Now this is the key question, and it's asked to Peter here, but this is the question that also comes to you in this day. This is the most important question. Who do you say that that Jesus is. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter makes this confession. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus said to him, you are blessed. But then he goes on and says something quite remarkable. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father. Here's what this means. I can tell you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I can try to bring to that certain evidences that would suggest it. But it is beyond my ability to prove that to you. Now, even if we had been alive in the days of Jesus, we would have seen some remarkable things, but Jesus looked just like everybody else in terms of His human reality, and even in that day, it would have been impossible to prove that He was God's Son. So here's how we come to believe this. In every case, whenever anyone makes the confession and truly believes it in their heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, it is by a divine revelation of God that we have that conviction in our hearts. I can tell you it's true. But in order for you to believe it, you have to believe it through the Holy Spirit. Because this is a divine claim that goes beyond our ability to prove. And this is why faith is one of the things that remains. It's, it's the core to who we are. So this confession, then, is the core confession. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. Not everybody needs all the evidence in order to believe. And we're going to talk later on in this Christmas season about Simeon and Anna. Two older folks who lived in the time of Jesus and were around the temple each day who, upon laying eyes on Jesus just once in the form of a baby, knew in that moment that God had revealed to them the Messiah, the Son of God. So what that means is if you are willing to be open to the Holy Spirit, you can believe in Jesus because it is by conviction through the Spirit that we believe and we make this confession. But now I want to go on to the next verse, verse 18. Jesus continues and he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So the rock upon which the church is built is of course Jesus. But what makes the church happen is that core confession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. When you make that confession, you become a Christian. And when you become a Christian, you become a part of the church. So there's some implications here. This confession that comes from a personal conviction, it, it just happens in my heart. Now we may be in a group when we come to faith and someone else comes to faith and there's several of us, but the truth is it happened in my heart and I confess that I believe Jesus is the Christ. So that happened in me by myself. But the minute I make that confession, I have become a part of something bigger. Because the church is comprised of all of those who confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, there may be times for a believer when solo religion is required because there's nobody else around who believes. But as soon as you believe and you are in the presence of someone else who believes, it is no longer a solo religion because the church is comprised of everyone who believes. So in that moment, it's no longer just about you. Jesus was born to build the church and that means all of us, not just me. So the idea of a solo religion in the midst of other believers is impossible. It can't exist. Because all who believe are what Jesus came to build the church. So what is the church? Well, we could spend a long time on that, and maybe we'll do a series on that sometime. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I do want to talk about it in a a general way, but also in a specific way. And for that, I want to go back to where we started, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul was made an apostle by God, sent with a message to tell people that the Old Testament Scripture said that Jesus would come. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, verse 5, I want to add this. Through Him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So when you have believed in Jesus, you become the called of Jesus and you receive grace that enables you to be a witness to Jesus to all the nations of the world. This was the purpose of the church. So let's put this all together. We're called individually. The Spirit of God works on our heart individually. But once we believe we come together as the church for the purpose of accomplishing God's will. Now there's different ways that this can happen. In specific, this church right here, the Forest Lake Church, is a Seventh-day Adventist church and as such, contained within that definition, is a reality by which we have organized ourselves locally and beyond these walls as believers in this time and in this place. Now something I want you to understand about church versus church organization. The church are those who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The church organization is what those people do together in an effort to accomplish God's will. The organization is not the church. The people are the church. And the implications of this are significant because over time, reality changes. The world is different in different times. We can communicate in different ways. We can move around in different ways. People's level of understanding changes. So at different times, the church takes on different forms. So you go back, if there was just you and one other believer or maybe you and five others, you could have a certain organization in how you decided to do things. Probably there wouldn't really be any leadership, you'd just talk about stuff and do it. But as soon as there were 20 of you, it might get a little trickier because you'd need a little more order. And as soon as there was a hundred of you, you better start having some order. Once you got to a thousand, you really better start having some order. Because it's just confusion. Now, the order that you choose is not in itself the church, neither is it in itself righteous. In fact, sometimes the church has chosen ways to order itself that were downright unrighteous. But that didn't mean that the people confessing were no longer the church. It just meant that they were off the path for a while. The church are those who believe. And they organize themselves in different ways at different times to accomplish God's will. Now, since we're on this topic, and I mentioned that we're a Seventh day Adventist church, I want to take a minute to explain to you how the Seventh-day Adventist Church is organized and how we fit into this whole big picture, because it's come to my attention that some people just don't actually know. So let's take a minute here and we'll talk about it. So I I got a little uh, presentation here. So that dot is us. We're that big blue dot. We are the Forest Lake Church. Now, we have to make certain decisions and do certain things as a church, and there are ways we do it. And the most important decision-making group of this church is not, like some may think, myself and the rest of the pastoral staff. That's not how it works. Because the church is not the pastors, the church is the members, those who believe. So the very most important decision making body within the church is what we call a church business meeting. And anyone who is a member of the Forest Lake Church is invited to participate in a church business meeting, and the decisions made there cannot be overturned by any other reality within the church. Now here's here that's the reality. I mean that's the that's the ideal. Here's the reality. If you were to attend a church business meeting, there's usually not more than 20 or 30 people at it. So it doesn't necessarily, unless there is a really huge issue in the church that everyone's interested in, get the kind of participation it probably should. But that's something we ought to look at in the future, and we ought to invest ourselves in that way. But because that's a truth, most of the business decisions of the church get made by the church board. The church board is a body set apart by the nominating committee that in this church happens to have about 80 people that are a part of it. The board meets every other month and and finalizes various different decisions we need to make. But because our board is so large, we've also established another group called administrative committee that meets on the off months that is a smaller group because if you've ever had to try tried to have a discussion, a policy discussion with 80 people in the room, It doesn't go very well, does it? So we created a smaller group that could wrestle with issues that the board could then see what had been done and then could be applied to the larger church. So those are kind of the the main governance entities we have in the forest lake church but beyond that there's all kinds of other leadership structures too so we've got we've got a board of deacons we've got a head deacon and we've got uh, assistant head deacons and they do their thing we've got elders that have their own organization we have deaconesses that have their organization we have a quilting ministry that has its own organization. We have Sabbath schools that have their own organization. You just go down the line and all of the different ministries have to organize themselves to achieve their purpose. Some of them choose a very clear and strong organization structure. Some are very loose in how they do things, but it suits the purpose that they do. So that's us and that's how we do things. Now, as a local Seventh-day Adventist church, we have a couple issues that we're responsible for. The most important one of those is membership. We as a church body decide who is allowed to be a member of the Forest Lake Seventh-day Adventist church and who is not. And we make that decision by voting. So when we baptize someone and then, then everybody claps their hands or, or raise their hands or says amen, that is us voting to accept that person into the membership of the Forest Lake Church. Now, let's say that someone somewhere else in the organization, uh, let's say a, a, a union official, we'll talk about unions in a second, decides that uh, that one of you, who should we pick on today? Let's pick on Todd Gable. That uh, someone at the union decides that that Todd Gable was a troublemaker. And yeah, thank you. Uh, Do I have a second? (laughs) Careful, we're about to vote yeah. No. They decide that this guy is a troublemaker, and they come to me and say, I want you to throw him out of the church. You know what I say to them? I say, Go back to where you're from. That's not your business. Because that business belongs to this body. And Todd stays a member of this church as long as you all want him to be a member of this church. That's our responsibility. We own that. We have jurisdiction over that and nobody can take it from us. Budget. Nobody tells us how to set our budget. We set our budget. And ministry. Nobody tells us what ministry we have to do. We choose it. We do it. Those things belong to us because we are the closest to mission. All right, but now let's go on. So the Forest Lake Church is a part of a sisterhood of churches called the Florida Conference. So, we're in there, and you got Markham Woods and Florida Hospital Church and Spring Meadows and a Popka. And that's just some of the ones in our area that are a part of the Florida Conference of Seventh day Adventists. Now, this Florida Conference of Seventh day Adventists has 209 churches in it, of which we're one of them, and 65,000 members in our sisterhood of churches called the Florida Conference. It is one of the largest conferences in all of North America. So this is us together, the Florida Conference. Now, churches tend to participate in elementary schools. That's why we participate with Forest Lake Education Center. Conferences tend to participate in the leadership of academies. So Forest Lake Academy is an entity of Florida Conference, all of us together. But now, Florida Conference isn't the end of the story either because the Florida Conference is a part of what's called the Southern Union. The Southern Union has eight conferences in it. We're one of those conferences, Florida, Georgia Cumberland, uh, Southeastern, South Atlantic, um, Gulf States, Carolina. There's There's a number of them that are a part. So it's really that Southeastern portion of the United States is our union. Our union has eight conferences, 1,134 churches, and 295,000 members. That's just our Southern Union. Unions tend to be responsible for universities. So Southern Adventist University is in the union structure. All right. But that's not the end of it either. Because then there's what's called the North American division. And in the North American Division there are ten unions, the Southern Union and then nine other unions that are a part of the North American Division. There are 5,561 churches in the North American Division and 1,250,000 members. But that's not the end of it either. There's one more group and that group is called the General Conference. And in the General Conference there are 14 divisions. North American Division is one of them and there's 13 more divisions around the world. There's 165 unions around the world, 665 conferences around the world, and 150,000 plus churches and companies around the world who already met today or will meet today just like we have here. Comprising, I got an update on my data, 21 million members worldwide. Obviously, something like that has to have some sort of organization in order to function in a rational way, right? Without it, we're just a mob. But you might be inclined to think, particularly if you have a business mind, okay, well, so in order to run this operation, you need a really powerful general conference in order to tell the division what to do and then a strong division to tell the union what to do and a strong union to tell the conference what to do and a strong conference to tell the church what to do so that I stand up here and tell you exactly what to do and you go out and do it. Is that how it works? Now you know at least that last one's not right. That's not how the church works. The church is not about centralized power and authority that commands members to go and do. Jesus is our head. And from Him, we get our instruction. So the different pieces of this organization are not there to direct it. They're there to support it. Now here's what I want you to understand. So we're going to go to another chart here. You see, you have general conference there, but mission is all the way on the other end of the structure. Here's the reality. If you're a general conference officer, you spend your whole life, every minute of your day, working with church leaders. You are, at that point, about as far away from literal one-on-one mission as you can get. So you don't want all the institutional authority in the place farthest removed from mission, right? It's there to support. It's there to hold us together. But then the divisions come next. And they're there to hold our region together. And then the unions come next. And they're there to hold the conferences in our section together. And then the conferences come next. And they're there to help us work together as well as we can but then the churches come after that and the churches are the ones who do mission. Even me, I spend almost all of my time every day with you. I have to go out of my way to interact with people who are not a part of the church. The natural part of my daily routine is to deal with people who are already a part of this community, the people who are in position for mission are the members. And they're the ones that must be the most empowered by this system. So every piece of this is to empower you to be effective in mission in this time, in this place where we are. This is how it's supposed to work. Sometimes it works really well, sometimes it doesn't. But now, a system like this we have to have some sort of funding models for, right? So we have a couple on this, and let's, let's bring that up. There's two we… one we call tithe and one we call offerings. So let me tell you a little bit about tithe. If you take a uh, tithe envelope out from in front of you, you'll see listed on there tithe. Tithe is an Old Testament concept that God set up for Israel so that the temple could be sustained. And tithe was defined as 10 percent of the increase so in those days that could mean grain or it could mean all kinds of things but in our day everything we do kinda happens in in terms of money so in our day the way tithe works and the way we have applied it is that we all as members commit to giving ten percent of our earnings to the work of God through the church and by doing that we give it directly to the conference so when we give tithe it goes directly to that conference of the Sisterhood of Churches, none of the tithe stays here. It goes to the conference, and it's used to pay pastors. Now those of us on the pastoral staff here that are the conference pastors, we are paid through the tithe fund. But it also supplements the salary of teachers and administrators and other ministries within the church, but then also portions of it go to sustain the union, to sustain the division, and to sustain the General Conference as a whole. That's what happens with tithe. And we as a people have chosen that we're going to commit that 10% of what God gives us, enables us to earn to this purpose. But what I want you to note is that tithe pays none of our local church expenses. Like our subsidy to Forest Lake Education Center. And like uh, all of the rest of our staff, go ahead and go back for a second there, all the rest of our staff, the non-pastoral staff, like uh, Lisa down here who puts our bulletin together every week, she comes out of monies from this local church, not tithe. Our utilities, our building fund, none of that comes out of tithe. So if all you've done is put something down on tithe, you've done great by us as a people as a whole, but you haven't helped us right here. So the monies that helps us right here we call church budget. Church budget is a free will non-tithe offering given to support the local ministry of this church. This is the money that the Forest Lake Church operates on. Now, it's a free will offering, and nothing is defined on how you want to give. And the reason for that is. There are different levels at which uh, we receive blessing from the Lord within this place. There are some who have way above and beyond what they need and others who are barely getting by. We all give our 10% in faithfulness, but after that, then we give what we can to church budget. Now, some can give a lot to that. Others, it's harder. So I hesitate to put a number on it, but I do want to tell you what Alicia and I try to do, and that is we try to give 5% of our income to the church budget. And I just want to suggest to you that if we all did that, we would have more than enough To fund what we need to do at this time in this place. As it is right now, there's about 300 what we call giving units that participate in giving to the church budget. That number could probably easily be 700. And if it was, just that increase in itself would absolutely change the reality of our expectations on what things we can fund and what things we can do. So participating in church budget is very important. Now, we're coming to the end of the year, so we'll just throw this in here. In order to end this year with a balanced budget, we need a December where we received $300,000 in local church giving. That sounds like a big number, but that's not unprecedented. In the year 2015, we gave $313,000 in the month of December. So this is something we've done before. We're, we're a little behind, but we're at a point where we've proven in the past we can do this. So I'm not concerned that we will, but I do want to put it before you so you understand how this works and how we got to this place. All right, so that was an aside, all of that discussion about how we're organized and how we're funded in those things. But really, the way it ties back into what we're talking about here from the Scripture was Jesus came to build up the church, and the church is sent forth as the witness to Jesus in the world. This is how we've organized ourselves to try to do it. And you understand that in order to achieve this, we've got to all participate here in what Jesus has set up. Now, he says in Matthew 16, verse 18, again, going back to Jesus' words, he said, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Sometimes we get a little discouraged with the church, right? with some of the decisions it makes, some of the ways it does things. You might sometimes get frustrated with us as a church leadership team, or you might get frustrated with the larger denomination and things. And in fact, there was a man named Alfred Loise who was a critic of the church, and he wrote in the, in the early 1900s. He said, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom and what arrived was the church. So he's a little down on the church at that point. He's like, Jesus had this glorious idea and this is what we got. But I'm not that pessimistic. I don't fall into that mindset because because here's the deal. My confidence is not in that we're ever going to figure it out and get it all right. My confidence is in the fact that Jesus promised that he would establish his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against us. So that means we may have seasons where we get off the track, or we mess up a little bit, or the organization struggles, or even goes into funny little pieces here and there. That's all right. I'm not worried about that because Jesus has promised that those who confess and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, will accomplish God's purpose. Now, I don't know how. And I don't know what we'll go through to get there, but my faith is not in our organizational model. Those change it, those change over time. My faith is that we are established by God and God's purposes don't fail. So even when it may look like the organized church is anything but organized or organized for the wrong cause. We need to have an Abraham-type faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. It says, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. There wasn't any chance Abraham was going to have a child, but he hung on to the faith. There's not any chance that the church is ever going to accomplish God's purpose except for the fact that God said it will. So hang on to the faith. He's not limited by our failing and weakness. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is God's plan. And if we are willing, we get to be part of God's plan. But to do it, we have to open our hearts. Jesus was born to win this victory. Galatians 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. The adoption, to be the church. How does it happen? John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Him, Jesus, to them God gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. How do we become the sons and daughters of God? By believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So through Jesus comes the church. And we can trust God's plan because if we had been part of Israel in the days when Jesus was about to come the first time, we might have been pretty sure we were off the rails and we weren't going to get this thing back, right? Because it was a mess. But Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. How in the world did Jesus' mother end up in Bethlehem where the prophet said she was going to be when she was from Nazareth? Well, God used none other than Caesar Augustus to get her there. You think God can't complete His plan? He'll use anything He needs. Verse 2, this census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Tradition on the birth of Jesus places his birth in the winter, though we don't actually know for sure what time of year it was. But I will say this about it. Winter is at least a good metaphor for the spiritual reality into which Jesus came. I want to end by reading you something from Desire of Ages, beginning on page 32. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. Providence had directed the movements of nations and the tide of human impulse and influence until the world was ripe for the coming of the Deliverer. If you'd been alive then, you might have thought, this is crazy, this isn't going to work, but God had a plan. At this time, the systems of heathenism were losing their hold upon the people. Men were weary of pageant and fable. They longed for a religion that could satisfy the heart. To the masses of the people, death was a dread mystery. Beyond was uncertainty and gloom. It was not alone the wailing of the mothers of Bethlehem, but the cry from the great heart of humanity that was born to the prophet across the centuries. The voice heard in Ramah lamentation and weeping and great mourning Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. In the region of the shadow of death, men sat unsolaced. The deception of sin had reached its height. All the agencies for depraving the souls of men had been put in operation. The Son of God looking upon the world beheld suffering and misery. The world had reached a breaking point. It was as a bleak midwinter in the world. But instead of destroying the world, God sent His Son to save it. Think about that line. He looked down at the despair, but instead of destroying, God sent His Son to save. Though corruption and defiance might be seen in every part of the alien province, a way for its recovery was provided. At the very crisis, when Satan seemed about to triumph, the Son of God came with the embassage of divine grace. And when the fullness of the time had come, The deity was glorified by pouring upon the world a flood of healing grace that was never to be obstructed or withdrawn to the plan of salvation should be fulfilled. Now I want you to understand this is about you. Jesus came, He established the church, And the flood of healing grace to the world will forever flow from you to the world. Jesus, through the Spirit, to you, to the world. The church will not fail until the plan of salvation is fulfilled. You are part of this. And right now, our world faces what is another bleak midwinter in spirituality. And even within our own circle, it looks like we're more inclined to tear each other apart than do good. But God's purpose will not fail. And we in this place are exactly what God needs us to be right now if we will open our hearts Give Him our hearts and be faithful in our lives. Jesus came when everything looked hopeless. God sends us when everything looks hopeless. The church will not fail, we are on God's mission.